All right. Well, I want to just say again how uh, thrilled I am to be here tonight and to be with all of you and so many of you that are here tonight. I appreciate your commitment to the study, and I hope that it is a blessing to you as you study through um, the Shaman on the Mount. I'm thankful that God has allowed me to be able to come and teach again uh, tonight, and I will keep doing that as long as he uh, will allow me to do that. So Tonight is our third lesson on the sermon on, on the, the sermon on the mount called the way of Jesus. Tonight we're, our lesson is entitled the way of the righteous. Uh, the way of those who are seen as right before the Lord. Last month we went through the Beatitudes and the Beatitudes are like a preamble to the Sermon on the Mount. A preamble is something that sets the stage for what's coming next, like the preamble to the Constitution. It's an, an introduction. It gives reason for the statements that are to follow. In the Beatitudes, Jesus taught us what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. So this week, uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 32. Now, the first four verses, verses 17 through 20, are a preface for the remainder of the chapter. Remember that the Sermon on the Mount is a one continuous lesson, one continuous sermon. In verses 17 through 20, Jesus is explaining something very important to his followers. In the remaining part of chapter 5, Jesus is going to go over six different topics. And we're going to cover three of those topics this month. We're not going to meet in December because of the holidays. And then in January, we'll cover the last three of those six topics. Each one of those topics, all six of them, start with a phrase that says, You have heard it said, or... It was also said. And then Jesus goes on to say, but I say. Now, I think that uh, Jesus knew, well, in fact, I know that he knew, uh, the crowd was very familiar with the law of Moses. They were very fit, uh, familiar with the old covenant, the crowd that had gathered around as he began to teach um, this sermon. And he knew that there was going to be some confusion about what he was fixing to say. So it was important that he preface these six topics to reassure the people in these four verses that he wasn't making any adjustments to the law, to the existing law. He was just merely giving them a deeper interpretation of the law. So that's what these first four uh, verses that we'll read tonight is just a preface for these topics that he's going to address. So let's re start reading in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus wants them to know in this passage that he is not changing one dot or one iota as it relates to the law. In the Hebrew language, a dot or an iota was a small mark in the language that could change the meaning of the text or the interpretation of the text drastically. We have markings like that in our language. For example, there's a small mark after the second word. We call that mark a comma. And it reads, let's eat, Grandma. But if I took that mark away, it would change the meaning and the interpretation drastically. It would change it to let's eat, Grandma. You see, it made a big difference. And so you see, he's telling them, I'm not changing anything. It's, it, it's, everything's going to be the same. I'm not changing anything. He's saying, um, he's trying to explain to them, though, that by following the way of Jesus, they can experience a deeper and a stronger righteousness than they had ever learned from their religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, as Jesus says, will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because their righteousness is external. It's only on the outside. See, Jesus, the way of Jesus, is an internal righteousness, an internal emphasis, an emphasis on the heart. So he wanted them to have a, a, a righteousness that resembled that of himself, a righteousness that resembled Christ. Think back to our first lesson in September. We um, looked at a passage of scripture in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, and I think it was verse 31. And we learned in this passage that Jesus said, I mean, that God said way back in the Old Testament that a day would come when he would establish a new covenant. And this covenant would be different. Why? Because he would write it on their hearts. So the old law, was written in stone. Think about the characteristics of stone. It's hard, it's cold. Jesus wanted them and us today to see the law from a different perspective, from the perspective of a warm, beating heart, from the warm, beating heart of Christ. He wants their right, he wanted their righteousness and our righteousness today to come from our heart rather than it to be cold, hard rules and laws that were forced on them. So that was what he was prefacing in those first four verses, verses 17 through 20. And then he moves on in verse 21 uh, to begin his first topic. Now, in this passage, Jesus starts... Uh, with murder, and then he moves on to adultery, which I think is sort of, uh, 
um, kind of funny because these commandments are typically ones that we tend to give ourselves a very high score on. You know, uh, we think, well, you know, I'm not, I've, I've never killed anybody, and I don't suspect that I ever will. Um, I've never uh, slept with anybody other than my husband, and I don't suspect that I ever will. So, you know, these are really things that I don't really have, probably don't need to worry about too much. Uh, they probably don't really pertain to me that much. But I want us to hear what Jesus has to say about this. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, he says, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, when he says, You have heard it said to those of old, he's, he's referring to the religious leaders of the times, the scribes and the Pharisees. This is what they've said. They say, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say, to you here this isn't this is important because here Jesus is establishing himself as who one who speaks with the full authority of God instead of saying thus saith the Lord what does he say he's claiming his deity as God in the flesh but I say but I say to you everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to, uh, with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and, the, and you to be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus, in this passage, is correcting the assumption that just because you haven't taken out a knife and jabbed it into someone's back and physically killed them, that you're not guilty of the sin of murder. The way of Jesus connects our actions with what's in our heart. And so Jesus now is informing them and informing us that not only our anger, but irritation, impatience, exasperation, all of these things have a potential to devalue another person's life. So he's instructing those who follow him, uh, believers, those who are followers of Christ, not to be like the scribes and Pharisees who think themselves to be righteous because they haven't physically murdered someone, but to take a look at their heart. And we need to examine our hearts as well. You know, when someone violates our will, when someone offends us or they hurt us in some way, we get angry. And that's a natural reaction when someone hurts us or offends us in some way. But Jesus is showing us in this passage how quickly our anger can turn to hateful speech, hateful actions 
And it's our hateful speech and our hateful actions that are sinful. You know, in Scripture, there are two times, two different times in Scripture where Jesus gets angry. The first one was when he healed the man with a withered hand. And the religious leaders of the time accused him of working on the Sabbath. So therefore he was uh, breaking the law. Uh, the second time was when he overturned the tables of the money changers. Now, how was Jesus' anger different from our anger? You see, in both of these instances, Jesus wasn't angry because his will had been violated. He had come to earth to do the will of the Father. And in both of these instances, it was the Father's will who had been violated, who was being violated. So in these instances, Jesus displayed what we know as righteous anger. In both of these cases, the offense was against a holy and a righteous God. In both cases. Now, how often are we really angered by the things in the world and the things that would displease God? Not to say that we're never, but how often? You see, more than likely, most of the time, our anger has nothing to do with God, but everything to do with ourselves. Jesus is trying to tell us if someone violates us or offends us or hurts us in some way and we become angry, if we don't deal with that, angry, that anger immediately, then that anger can, can turn to contempt. And it can go even further. It can cause us to become bitter against that person. And it can even cause us to hate that person. So... Jen Wilkins says, in, in some of one of her books, she says, when we engage in contemptuous speech, what we end up doing with our tongue is committing character assassination. Isn't that the truth? Yes. See, we like to rally the troops, and we want to spin the story in a way that, you know, says what we want, you know, says it turns out the way we want it to be. And oftentimes we say things that hurt people. It hurts them just as much as if we took a knife and stabbed them in the back. And you know, they can't do anything about it. They can't defend themselves. And so the religious leaders of the day, they taught that you could get away with just about anything short of physically committing the act of murder. Jesus is saying that murder begins in the heart. And so we must first examine ourselves. Jesus desires that we reconcile ourselves with those who have offended us, those who have hurt us, those who we have trouble with. His desire is that we forgive and that we reconcile. And ladies, there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. You can forgive someone. But reconciliation has to do with that relationship, building that relationship and restoring that relationship. There are times when you can forgive someone, but that person, other person is not willing to reconcile. So 
the idea is God wants us to forgive and he wants us to reconcile. But let's look what he says. Jesus gives us a remedy on how to deal with this in verses 23 and 24. In verse 23, he says, If you are offering your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. You see, in this particular passage, he refers to that person as a brother. So that means that he is referring to a a believer, uh, a brother or a sister in Christ. I think Jesus is trying to illustrate to us here that if our horizontal relationships are out of kilter, then it's going to affect our vertical relationship with God. And so we need to get, we need uh, to seek forgiveness and to seek uh, reconciliation with those who have offended us. Therefore, Jesus is just saying, you need to stop. You need to hit the pause button. You need to fix it. Fix the problem. Deal with the problem. Deal with your attitude. Be reconciled one to another before it interferes with your relationship with God. And so, ladies, when we harbor anger and unkind thoughts, it affects our worship. Our, there's no value in our worship when we harbor those kind of feelings in our heart. The psalmist put it like this. In Psalm six, chapter 66, verse 18, it says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. He will not hear us. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not get grieved, the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, among, along with every form of malice. Be kind and passionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Paul also says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that um, we must train ourselves for the purpose of being righteous. Um, As followers of Christ, we need to put away our old way of handling problems. Paul says this in in Ephesians, that same chapter, verse 4, that we need to put away our old habits and we need to replace those old habits with the way of Christ. We have to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. We have to change our thinking and think in a way that pleases God rather than ourselves. But what keeps us from doing this? What keeps us oftentimes for seeking forgiveness and seeking reconciliation with our brothers and sisters in Christ? I want to tell you what is the biggest problem is our pride. It's my pride. I can tell you that. You see, because our pride convinces us that we're justified in the matter. Our pride convinces us that we're justified in saying what we say. 
We're justified in doing what we did. But what we can't forget, we can never forget that it's not just about our relationship with each other. When we have strained relationships with each other, it affects our relationship with God. That is our most important relationship. And God is our ultimate judge, and he is our ultimate justifier. And then in verse 25 and 26, he broadens it out. He goes beyond just brothers and sisters in Christ. He gives us a broader understanding on how to handle accusations that from not just brothers in Christ, but anyone who comes against us. Verse 25 says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are doing going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Notice, he doesn't say whether the accusations are true or false, although it kind of leans itself to think that probably the accusations were true, but it, it, he doesn't say that. But what he is saying is that we need to do whatever we can do to make peace with those who come against us. If whatever we can do before it ends up in a court of law, we need to try to do what we can to make peace. That's the way of Christ. That's the way of the righteous. Does anybody have uh, anything that they'd like to add to this as it relates to murder? It's not just a, a physical uh, act of killing someone. It's what's in our heart and how we feel towards that person and how we respond in our actions towards that person. And then he moves on to adultery. And um, in verse 27, he says, And you have heard it, you've heard that it was said. Again, he's talking about, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees. This is what they've said. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, Jesus says to them, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This makes this very clear, doesn't it? The audience here was uh, predominantly men. Um, in the biblical times, there would probably would not have been very many women that would, you know, they were at home, they were taking care of the things. The, um, so, you know, it, in this audience there on the side of the mountain, as Jesus is speaking, it would have been the disciples and Jewish, predominantly Jewish men. Now, the leaders, religious leaders of this time were teaching that adultery happened only when you physically slept with someone who was not your husband. So again, Jesus is teaching us that adultery is a matter of the heart. Our heart's desire should be to please God and not ourselves. I believe in this passage that there is plenty in this section that can pertain to women as well. Uh, for men, I believe that 
the temptation for adultery uh, oftentimes begins with lustful eyes, what they see. They see something that visually that they're attracted to, and that begins the, the thought process for adultery. For women, I believe that the temptation can be visual, visual, but more likely, I think, that it's mental. The seeds of adultery begin in the mind. Think about discontentment, for example. A wife becomes discontent in her relationship with her husband, and she begins to think, why can't my husband be a little bit more considerate of me? You know, after all, Susie's husband, I, you know, he seems to be very considerate of her, much more considerate of her than my husband is of me. Um, why can't my husband be a little more helpful? I mean, after all, I work all day just like he does. You know, he come home and help me with the kids and cook supper and fold the laundry. I mean, you know, he, I, I want a husband that's a little more helpful. Maybe... You know, she thinks to herself, well, why can't my husband be a little more fit? You know, I want a husband that, I mean, not so fat and, you know, I want to look buff and, you know, I want him to, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, when we got married, he wouldn't look like this. You know, I want him to, you know, I want one that's a little more physically attractive. Maybe not, I'll have a bald head or something, you know. You see where it starts. And, or maybe she says, you know, well, maybe... Uh, I want my husband to be more financially successful. I wish my husband had a better job. I mean, you know, if he if he had made more money, then we could have a nicer home, drive a fancier car, and, um, you know, we could go on more fabulous vacations like our neighbors go on. And uh, you see where it starts. It starts right here in our mind. And, and, the, and then she becomes fixated on these things. And then what happens? She begins to lust for a husband that's not hers. So lust is really a form of covetousness. It's wanting something that's not yours. Adultery starts with feelings of contempt, feelings of anger, and notice it's the same root as murder. The same root. Listen to what Jesus says. In verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus is not saying in this passage that you need to literally cut your hand off or pluck your eye out. Uh, but what instead, what he is saying is that when we have these kind of thoughts, when these kind of thoughts come into our mind, we need to get rid of them. We need to pluck them out. You know, uh, put them away. There's some seeds that need to be plucked out. You know, like just like in my garden. You know, there are weeds in my garden, and I have to get rid of those weeds. If I don't get rid of the weeds... What's going to happen? They're going to take over. Yeah. And they're going to take over my garden. They're going to ruin my garden. That's the same way it is with these sort of thoughts. This sin will take over 
and lead us down a path of destruction every time. And so James says in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then the desires, when it is conceived, give birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives forth to death. It will lead us down a path of destruction. The heart of what Jesus is saying to the people is that when we find ourselves dwelling with lustful intent on things that are outside of what God has given us, we should quickly, quickly confess it to God, run away from it before it takes root and leads us into sin. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way of a righteous person. So anybody have anything you want to comment as it relates to that? <laughs> We do. It is. Yes. Thank you for uh, bringing that uh, because that is very important. That is a very uh, wonderful scripture, and we need to be able to. We need to be able to, like she said, cut it off, pluck it out right away, immediately, uh, before. Because if not, it will take root. It will, and uh, lead us into sin. So, um, thank you, Anita, for that. I'm sorry. Thank you. 
Right. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. We and we don't need to participate at all in any of those. And if we, you know, when um, in regard to our husbands, we need to be positive. We don't need to say negative things about our husband. You know, uh, I, I'm not saying maybe it's true, but when you're out with other people and if it, you need to keep it to yourself. You know, if you, whatever problems you have, then you need to work it out and reconcile. Between, but you don't want to go out in, in public and say negative things about your spouse. You always want to be positive, always. And and that's very true. What she said is that being showing appreciation to for her to her husband for the things that he does well, and to to express that to him verbally, uh, how much she appreciates the things, and then those things that maybe you know you need to work on, you're able to do that. You never talk about it, but you need to be positive, and you need to uh, um, express you know the things that he does that are it's good. And then how much you appreciate those things. That's very true. Very true. Anything else? Exactly. Exactly. That's right. Yeah, right. Exactly right. Anyone else have something to share? I appreciate all your comments and your sharing because it's good. Very good. All right. Well, we're going to uh, conclude with our last topic for tonight. This is the third of the six topics that Jesus um addresses and the third topic is divorce and it is found in verses 31 and 32 now i think uh, you know this topic is difficult it because in a room um, like this there are women in this room that possibly have initiated a divorce there are women in this room have been on the receiving end of a divorce 
There are women who were divorced before they came to know Christ. There are women who were divorced while walking with Christ. But no matter the circumstances, I understand and know divorce is painful and it's a very personal topic. I, I know that. And I realize um, that it is difficult uh, for those women. And this passage oftentimes is taught as a standalone topic. But I want us to look at it tonight in the context of which Jesus uh, communicates it. In verse 31 it says, But it was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Historically, in the time of Christ, divorce was something that was an option for men. But it wasn't an option for women. Once a woman married, she knew that it was until death do us part or until her husband decided that he didn't want to be married to her any longer. So Jesus is addressing this topic, knowing what is being taught by the religious leaders of the day. There was a time when a husband could during this biblical time, a time when a husband can divorce his wife for any reason, any reason. She burnt the beans out the door. <laughs> you know, if she put on a few pounds, you know, whatever. If he just decided he didn't want her anymore, he divorced her. Maybe she couldn't have a child. She was barren. But what, for whatever reason that he chose, he could divorce her. But I want us to go, I want us to turn over in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. There's just some other, another passage here where Jesus is talking. And uh, I want us to see what he says about divorce in this passage. Chapter 19 of Matthew, starting in verse 3. And the Pharisees came to him. The Pharisees come, come to Jesus and tested him, saying, Is it lawful? to divorce one's wife for any cause? No doubt, they already knew what Jesus had been teaching. They had already heard the Sermon on the Mount, so you know they're just trying to trip him up and come up with something that they uh, think that they can catch him with. So Jesus answers, and he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In verse 7, he said to them, they said to him, the Pharisees said to Jesus, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife from the beginning, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except 
for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. What Jesus is saying again to these people is that the way of Jesus does not rest on loopholes like a certificate of divorce. Jesus wants them to consider their view of marriage. How high of a view do they have of marriage? How high do, of a view of marriage do we actually have? Do we see marriage as something that we can get out of on the first sign of turbulence? Or do we have an attitude that I'm here until death do us part or there's no other option? We have to again look at our heart. What's our heart attitude in regard to our marriage? In biblical times, women were most often betrothed to their husband at a very young age. Um, they had arranged marriages. If the husband, decide, as I said before, decided that he didn't want her, he could divorce her and put her away. And in those times, these women, in order to provide for themselves, were oftentimes forced into prostitution, just like Mary Magdalene. So, when we go back to verse 32, let's listen to what he says again in verse 30. Uh, uh, verse 32, find that again. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality does what? Makes her commit adultery. In order to provide for herself, oftentimes these women would end up in prostitution. So in a very literal sense, a man during this time who divorced his wife forced her into adultery. And so Jesus is, a, is addressing the problem of the time in the context of the time. In today's time, though, let's, let's look at today's time. I think that oftentimes what we see is that people have a very low view of marriage. You know, you can get a divorce in less than 30 days. The difference between holding a high view of marriage and a low view of marriage is when we say, no matter what, no matter what, should this marriage end in divorce, despite my very best efforts, I want to be able to look back and say, I did everything. I did everything I could to save my marriage. I realize that there are women that their husbands have walked out. They've deserted them. And they did everything to, to, um, to show love, to show forgiveness, to demonstrate reconciliation, but the husband was unwilling, unwilling to reconcile. You know, that woman can stand before God knowing in her heart that she did everything. She can stand with a clear conscience and say, I did everything. I demonstrated love. I demonstrated forgiveness. I was willing to reconcile. On the flip side of that, though, 
there are women whose husbands have committed adultery and they are not willing to forgive nor to reconcile. In the counseling ministry, I've dealt with this numbers of times when women would look me straight in the face and say, he doesn't deserve my forgiveness. He doesn't deserve to be for my love. He doesn't deserve reconciliation. Even though the husband is desiring to work things out and to make the marriage work, the wife says, I'm not going to do it. He has hurt me so bad. He has uh, embarrassed me. All of these things. He doesn't deserve my forgiveness. You see, God desires that we forgive and that we reconcile. You know, um, not every marriage, not every marriage that is impacted by adultery ends in divorce. No. And I want you to know that there is grace and that there is forgiveness in regards to things that have happened in the past. I know many marriages, many marriages who have been affected by adultery and by God's grace, these couples have overcome and they have strong God-honoring marriages today. So just because there is adultery doesn't mean that that's the end of the marriage. It can be worked out by the grace of God if both part parties are willing to forgive and willing to reconcile um, their differences. My prayer is that we would, as, as women, uh, would have a high view of marriage. And as followers of Christ, we would see marriage as sacred and divorce as the absolute worst-case scenario. Why? Because our marriages are a reflection of our relationship with Christ. Those who love the Lord work hard to build a marriage that shows the world, by God's grace, what a Christ-like union looks like. Marriage is not easy. It's not easy even for the, in the best case. We have to work hard. We have to work at it. There's always going to be times when you have ups and downs. But when both people have a high view of marriage, it can be worked out. No matter what the difference is, it can be worked out. If our heart's desire is to have a marriage that reflects Christ, it can be worked out. No matter what the difference is. Christ will never cast us out. Never. Christ will never divorce us from the family or the kingdom of God. Never. So, we should represent the same heart as it relates to our marriage and to our spouse. The question is, does our righteousness in regard to our marriage resemble that of Christ? We have to examine our heart. Do we have a heart to please ourselves? Or we have a heart to do what is right before the Lord. What enables us? What enables us to do what is right? Even when we're hurt. Even when we have been offended so badly. What enables us? The scripture says in Romans chapter 8. Is when we walk in the spirit. It's the spirit of God who dwells within us. 
that enables us to do what is right. Even when we don't want to, he enables us to do it. So um, that's all I had tonight for um, the subject of divorce. I hope that there, if there's someone else that would like to comment on that. Um, but these are... They have a very low view of marriage. Right. Very low view. Well, and you know, also, this isn't about divorce, but like when, uh, like my husband and I, both our spouses passed away, and we got, you know, met and got married, a lot of my, who say, are Christian friends, said, well, why get married at your age? Well, God wants us to be married. I mean, right. you know. I, right. And marriage is, and they have a low view, and they don't see marriage as being sacred, no matter what your age or how old you are. Uh, anyone else? I know this is is a difficult topic, uh, and I know that there are women that have gone through very hard and difficult uh, divorces, marriages that have been difficult. I understand that, and I. Um, I, my heart goes out to you in that. Anything else? Well, if that's all, we'll go to the Lord in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for the opportunity again to come and teach. Lord, I thank you for your word and what you teach us. And, and Lord, I pray that we will truly examine our hearts and with you we would... You would search our hearts and reveal to us anything that's in our heart that is not pleasing to you and that we would desire to bring glory to you and honor to you in all that we do. And that is our first and primary uh, goal in our life, in our aim in life, is to glorify you and honor you. And Lord, I, I pray that uh, you will enable us to do that. We know that you will through the work of your spirit in our lives and that um, we would reflect your glory in our lives and in our marriages, in our relationships with others. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.